Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with host Lane Nordland. Hey everyone and welcome back to the Cattleman's Call podcast. I'm your host Lane Nordland and our guest today is going to be Kansas State University's Dr. Bob Weber and we're going to talk about how improvements in cattle genetics are making the industry more sustainable and much more is going to be covered in this great conversation. But first these words from our podcast sponsor Transova. Your legacy is not only where you came from but more importantly It's where you're headed. With our toolbox of reproductive technologies, exceptional team of professionals, and more than 40 years of experience, we continue to create future leaders. Whether it's advancing superior genetics or empowering the next generation of livestock producers, you can trust Transova to continue your legacy. All right, friends, as we return back to today's Cattleman's Call, I'm excited for today's conversation because our goal on this podcast is to feature cattlemen and women and all the industry leaders that are doing their part to uh, make sure we have a profitable future and a bright future in the industry. And as I mentioned uh, uh, before the commercial break, Dr. Bob Weber joins us here today. He is a name that many in the cattle industry uh, uh, know. Uh, They've heard him speak at... uh, Uh, Many events across the nation. Of course, he's with Kansas State University. He's a professor and also the head of the Eastern Kansas Research Centers uh, through their extension and research services down there. But uh, uh, Bob, how are how are things going in Kansas today? Is it as cold as it is in Montana? Uh, It is a bit chilly here. Uh, This morning when I went out to uh, take care of the cows at our house, um, it was um, uh, about three below and uh, wind chill 14 below. So, um, you know, once it gets below about five, I'm... uh, it might as well be 30 below. Um, it's, it's all about the same to me. So it's cold. So, well, it, um, uh, yeah, it was about 29 below here in, in, in Southwest Montana today. So, but what, ugh, what, I, what I always say is if there's an R in the month's name, that's long John season. <laughs> right. <laughs> Two seasons, right? Winter and the 4th of July. Yes. And road <laughs> construction season for us too. You know, that, uh, that winter and road construction season up in Montana and I know many other rural parts. <laughs> Uh, But, uh, uh, Bob, as we mentioned, today we are going to talk and focus about cattle genetics and how cattle genetics are really creating so many more opportunities on the sustainability front, whether that is the actual environmental impact cattle have on uh, the sustainability conversation, but also the profitability. We have to be sustainable on the profit end for all of our family businesses to stay to stay going on to that next generation. But uh, uh, before we jump into that conversation, I just want to learn more about who is Dr. Bob Weber. Could you share a little bit about your background? Where did you grow up, your experience in the cattle business, and what drove you to get a Ph.D.? Yeah, sure, Lane. Uh, yeah, so Bob Weber, um, uh, faculty here at uh, at K State, um, as you alluded to, took a, a recently a new role. Um, I'm one of those administrators now, um, and have some oversight over uh, you know, kind of broader. Uh, ag and uh, crop extension, family consumer science stuff in the eastern part of the state. But, you know, long background, as you know, in uh, beef cattle extension, uh, primarily genetics focused. And uh, the motivation for that really came from um, my experience as a young person, grew up in southern Colorado. Um, uh, my family had a, a farming and cow calf operation, and we had a, a small herd of kind of our overgrown 4 H and junior livestock uh, project in registered Hereford cattle. And uh, that really started my interest in, in genetics. And uh, as I went through college, I sort of swayed a little away from that and was real interested in sort of um, kind of uh, value based marketing system, uh, ag econ kind of stuff. My first job out of college um, uh, with uh, degrees at CSU uh, was at a breed association, the Gelpfe Association in Denver, and that job had three pieces to it. Um, Youth development, youth uh, um, junior breed association work, so kind of helping coordinate those activities. Uh, Commercial um, marketing activities, uh, worked closely with uh, Don Schiefelbein, who you know. Mm -hmm. Um, He was a staff member there when I was as well. And then uh, the third part of the job was breed improvement. Um, And so 
through that process, continuing uh, kind of professional development, I took a couple of classes um, in the grad program in animal breeding at CSU. And that really perked my interest in uh, kind of pursuing uh, some doctoral studies in animal breeding and genetics. And uh, I had the opportunity to go to Cornell University and work with uh, John Pollock and Dick Quass. Um, and at that point in time, um, uh, Cornell was the genetic evaluation service provider for the American Simmental Association. So I worked actually part-time um, as the kind of breed improvement director um, at Simmental while I was doing my PhD work at Cornell. And so a great experience for me as a, um, at that point I was 30, so I was kind of a non-traditional student, but a great opportunity to stay plugged into industry um, and do some, uh, do some work on genetic evaluation stuff and um, then kind of moved into academia, so. So obviously, like you said, a lot of experiences, a lot of people that you've met along the way to, to get to where you are. And uh, of course, uh, I, I've actually heard you speak probably back in 2017, I think, with, I think Dr. Endicott had you come out to Montana State when she was with MSU. And, uh, oh, right. And, and you did a presentation that I attended then. Uh, but, uh, you know, from being a professor with KSU, I know you were with uh, the Cow-Calf Extension Specialist, and now your, your role is the, the, the head of the eastern part of the research centers there in Kansas. Uh, what, what does your day look like? Because it's obviously not just livestock with, uh, with this new role with the research centers. Uh, how do you have to adapt to, to looking at cropping systems and, and other types of, of ag research that you necessarily weren't, uh, weren't uh, focusing on in your previous roles? Yeah, great, uh, great question, Lane, and and that's still a little bit of an evolving process. Uh, I'm about three months in. Um, one of the things we do here at uh, at K State and uh, beginning of the calendar year um, is faculty evaluations, and so um, a lot of my uh, activity so far has been kind of you know trying to get up to speed on on what resources we have available um, in terms of both facilities and personnel. And then starting to think through, um, you know, opportunities for um, what we in academia call interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary research. So um, one of the centers that um, um, I help lead is uh, down in near Parsons, Kansas, and has a, a f- mixture of faculty across disciplines. But um, some of the work going on there is focused on um, integrated crop livestock systems. So Dr. Jamie Lynn Farney's uh, uh, the livestock person there. And uh, she's been doing a lot of work on cover crop research um, in both kind of stalker and cow-calf programs. Um, And so, you know, one of my early parts of my job is trying to figure out, you know, kind of what the objectives um, that we ought to go after in terms of grant funding and meeting needs of um, producers um, and farmers in, uh, in southeast Kansas. So. Um, the day-to-day is a little uh, a little varied. Um, uh, arguably, a fair bit of the new job has been turning off the old job. So, um, like many uh, extension folks, uh, you know, I had a this was an internal hire, so it worked on a pretty short fuse. Um, uh, I had you know a whole spring of and winter of uh, extension programs lined up, and so um, I've managed to kind of get through most of those. I've got a couple outstanding commitments yet, but uh, um, kind of still, I'd say, in the transition phase. But um, one of the things that I'm I'm really excited about though is is opportunities to do. Um, research and extension programming kind of broadly around the sustainability topic. And so, you know, our discussion today is um, one I've been looking forward to for a while because, um, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunities for um, beef producers to um, not only become quote unquote, more sustainable, um, but to do it in ways that actually uh, substantially improve um, uh, farm uh, profitability or ranch profitability. And, you know, a lot of the things that that we think about in sustainability stuff um, speaks to production efficiency issues. So things we can do to, you know, improve range quality, improve stocking rate, um, improve reproductive rate of our cows, um, anything that changes kind of the input-output relationship typically means we've done a better job utilizing that resource, um, which fundamentally improves our sustainability position. So um, I think there's a lot of really applied stuff we can do in this space um, to talk to producers. Um, I think producers struggle with, so I'm glad we're having the conversation. because I think producers hear sustainability and then they go, I don't know what to do with that, right? So mm-hmm. having some real practical 
opportunities for them to think about is really useful. As you mentioned, people hear the term sustainability, and there's truly so many different definitions or ways to look at sustainability. And when many producers look at their own operations, they've been implementing sustainability for so long, and especially with the changes that occurred in Washington, D.C. during the 2020 election, sustainability is a big topic that the Biden administration is discussing, and a lot of producers are asking the question, how am I going to be impacted by future regulations or this or that? But at the end of the day, I think this is the time where we as cattle and beef producers stand up saying, hey, actually, we are sustainable. We have these examples, but it's just taking the time to to, to share this message and to formulate just how we are going to reach these decision makers that are separated from the countryside. So from your perspective, from your work in the industry, how have improvements in cattle genetics, how are they making them more sustainable in a broad approach? And then we'll really dive into to more of research that you've conducted or uh, your colleagues have conducted when we are looking at cattle genetics and sustainability. Yep, sure. So I think, um, you know, in real broad sto- strokes, um, you know, genetic evaluation in the U.S. is um, a fairly evolved science. Um, and, you know, we've got uh, EPDs and selection indexes designed um, to help producers um, you know, optimize and, and manage genetic potential across a range of traits um, that I think, you know, directly speaks to um, you know, productivity in those uh, production environments and, and can help, you know, really target genetics to, you know, I like to use the term, um, environmentally adapted cows and market targeted calves. And so, you know, thinking through our breeding and selection decisions um, to, to optimize those. Um, you know, I think a, a great example, and it's really a simple one, is um, look at cow inventory to beef tonnage produced in the United States. Um, you know, we use um, fewer resources today and out of and use fewer cows to produce more product than we ever have um, in, in history. And that speaks to efficiency of our system, right? So um, improve, not to say there's not places to improve, but we've made um, substantial gains in both genetics and management over time um, to make our system produce a lot more beef with a lot less environmental impact. And we just need to do a, a in some ways, a better job communicating that. Um, I think, um, you know, things like the, the life cycle assessment work that uh, uh, NCBA and others have done to, to kind of document where we're at in the beef value chain at each segment um, is, is really useful. I'm also a big fan of the if you don't measure it, you can't manage it sort mm-hmm. of approach. And I think it's important that we be able to communicate with not only legislators, but also the consuming public about um, as an industry, you know, what it is that we're doing to actually improve. Right. Um, and I think that that speaks a lot to our intentions about um, how we manage our individual businesses um, and how we collectively work together as an industry to not only support and fund research in that area, but collectively work towards um, a more productive and sustainable and profitable product. So, And when we actually look at uh, cattle genetics and consumer demand. Could you maybe get a little more specific, maybe, as we've looked over the past uh, two or three decades? As you mentioned, we are uh, so much better at producing uh, more beef with less cattle. Um, could you maybe share some examples that you would share with a with a consumer? And, and maybe this is almost a, a coaching session for how ranchers can, can, can use that, almost that Masters of Beef Advocacy training, um, if they haven't done it yet, just that, that little uh, elevator speech that they can use in, in looking at how we are using genetics and raising more beef with better cattle, but with less cattle. Yep. Yep. So I think, you know, the, the example we used just a second ago, that's the, you know, commercial cattle inventory. Um, you know, it's the classic graph that has the peak in, in the mid 1970s for um, cow inventory. Um, and then it's also got the, you know, tons of beef produced um, in, in the United States. Um, that one, I think, is, is, is very demonstrative of, you know, the improvements in um, production here in, in, in the U.S. And, um, you know, we can tie that to, um, you know, improvements in growth rate and performance. Um, if we think about maybe the last 20 years, you know, dramatic improvements in um, 
the quality attributes uh, or carcass merit of, of the product that we produce um, as, as two really good examples that are driven by um, genetic improvement um, and genetic selection over time. Those didn't happen by accident, right? They were deliberate responses to um, individual breeders making decisions about, you know, how do I change uh, my cattle to meet um consumer demands um, uh, in, in a broad sense, you know, consumers of, um, you know, retail beef products or uh, restaurant products, um, but also other consumers in the chain, right? So how do I produce calves that are valuable to um, the stocker and feeder segments of our business, for example? Um, so I think there's uh, some, some good examples there. Um, uh, maybe more contemporary ones, or, you know, we could talk about the use of, of genomics tools to uh, improve the precision and accuracy of our selection systems and the utilization of selection index to optimally weight our decisions um, towards a particular outcome um, that's driven by improvements in, in profit. And we can you know, expand on that to think about, well, those drive improvements in production efficiency, which mean better, more responsible use of the resources of which we're stewards. Um, and then we can also talk about, you know, things like um, some of the, the, the really um, new and novel stuff related to um, feed intake and feed efficiency measures. So doing a better job of um, selecting for animals that um, have less environmental impact, um, do a better job converting feed resources into edible beef products um, as a couple of examples. So. Well, again, there, there's just so many of these cutting-edge technologies that are occurring now, but also all of these technologies and systems that have been around for quite some time, and, and I want to talk about those tools, but uh, I do have to pause and just thank, again, our friends at Transova Genetics uh, for actually sponsoring today's podcast. Transova Genetics is celebrating 40 years of multiplying success, so be sure to check them out at transova.com. We greatly appreciate their support the Cattleman's Call podcast. Coming back to this, Bob, as we look at, uh, you know, you mentioned genomics, and we look at these other tools that producers have been using, whether that is um, AI in their cattle, uh, ET, IVF, um, how, uh, how can we look at these tools that have been around for a, a while in becoming more profitable and sustainable, and then you know, tying that into more of these new, uh, new methods that are out there uh, in this discussion? Yeah, so uh, great, great question, Lane, and it, it sort of reminds me of the um, you know, strategy of you know, don't, don't leave all the old things behind that are useful in for the new shiny thing. Right. Um, and so, you know, we've made, you know, dramatic improvements in, in genetic evaluation systems, you know, in the last, you know, five years in particular, um, as we've made, you know, genomically enhanced, uh, uh EPD systems available across the, the spectrum of seed stock production here in the U S and, you know, commercial producers, I don't think sometimes realize how much that's changed. Um, but it has been a, a sort of a dramatic revolution in, um, genetic prediction and they're the, the beneficiaries of that, um, in terms of you know, more predictive, um, measures, more accurate measures for a, a range of traits, and particularly ones that, you know, historically we've had sort of challenge or difficulty measuring. So things specifically related to, um, you know, maternal performance or stability of cows, um, you know, for a typical seed stock bull, you know, they're under the old sort of evaluation strategy of traditional stability, you know, those bulls didn't have a good proof on how long their daughters were in production until their daughters were actually to that age, right? So if it was a, uh, to a six-year endpoint, those bulls were typically eight years or older before their um, you know, first daughters made a record. Um, the bull's long gone, right? It's, it's really mm -hmm. difficult to make good genetic and rapid genetic improvement. But if we can take and, and gather information on the genomic side and inform an EPD on a bull that's being selected as a yearling that has as much accuracy as that sire's daughters, you know, maybe 25 or 30 head of them being in production and making a record to six years of age, that's hugely impactful, right, um, in terms of improving the selection accuracy. And so using those tools at the commercial level now is, um, I think, at an unprecedented uh, level of precision. And so we need to, to make sure we use those. But we can't sort of, you know, take our eye off all some of the existing 
older technologies we have available to us. Um, on the genetics front, that means things like crossbreeding systems. Um, if we think about you know, a single technology that um, can dramatically improve um, output per cow exposed. Um, there's few in our, our business that are more effective than that. Um, so we're talking about, you know, in, in the planned crossbreeding system, you know, improvements of somewhere in the mid 20s in terms of weaning weight per cow exposed. Um, so that's, you know, 23 to 25% more output with basically the same inputs. So by definition, we've improved efficiency. Um, and a lot of that comes from, uh, in fact, about two thirds of it, you've heard my spiel before, uh, about two thirds of the economic benefit comes from improved productivity on the cow side, which is largely driven by two things. One, improved reproductive rate um, and improved longevity of the cow herd. And so by doing that, um, you know, we, by definition, um, uh, require fewer replacement females into our herd, which means you know more of them get targeted towards um, beef production, but we have less maintenance costs, less development costs um, on the replacement heifer side, which improves the cost position of the operation, but also the revenue because those females go into the marketing chain. So, you know, simple technologies like that, that, uh, you know, have big inputs or a big influence on um, profitability, but also have a big input or influence on uh, I think sustainability. So <laughs> it, it's funny when I first uh, saw the one the one of those uh, COVID vaccines that was approved that has to uh, come at, at that negative uh, uh, reading. You know, has to be so cold. Oh or yeah, whatever. It's like, it, yeah, minus twenty or something. Yeah. It, and I'm just thinking it, the first thing that popped in my mind. I'm like, gosh darn, our our, our semen salesman could be transporting this uh, our, the products uh, with with, uh, with keeping everything cold and keeping those sticks. <laughs> And our veterinarians administering it. (laughs) And and I would be more confident in that system than some of the others, for sure. (laughs) But that just jumped to my head. But, you know, when when we look at, uh, you know, breeding techniques like using AI, it is amazing, though, just to see how... You know, a tried and true method that has been around for for quite some time continues to improve. I mean, when you look back, when when people would first AI and and their catch rates would be you know uh, lower than fifty percent, you know maybe thirty forty percent, and now mm-hmm. we're we're having. Uh, th- these cattle bred up using AI and that, that need for that uh, cleanup bowl is, is minimal nowadays. How how important is it for our land-grant universities, for our partners in agribusiness and in genetics, continue to look at these methods that are tried and true and uh, uh, to develop uh, the, the best breeding possible? Well, I think it's, it's, it's really important. And I think it's, it's also, you mentioned, you know, kind of the role our land grants play, um, you know, continuing to be um, sort of those sources of unbiased information, um, good applied research um, that demonstrate these sort of best practices. Um, and, um, you know, you mentioned AI, and, and, and that's one that I think is in, in the commercial sector, obviously has some costs associated with it. But as we think about, you know, the genetic improvement side, you know, some tremendous opportunities, um, and I think, you know, there's there's some really you know cool stuff going on in that space in terms of um, you know, gender sort semen. Um, you know, we use that in our, our seed stock operation at home um, primarily to produce uh, replacement females. Um, but we can use that same technology in, in the commercial sector um, with pretty good success rates um, to build really targeted um, uh, replacement females so we could make a very precise decision about which maternal characteristics sire to use. Um, and I argue from a, a beef industry perspective that um, you know, replacement female genetic selection starts with choosing the bull that that female is out of, right? Um, so the, the sire that produces those replacement females is step number one. Um, and for many producers, that's the extent of um, their genetic improvement on replacement. So being precise in that decision is, is very advantageous. The other bit that it offers to us is it, it constrains the number of, from a state of sustainability perspective, if we're in one of these breeding systems, which I advocate for, that's very targeted on building maternal cows or maternal females that are environmentally adapted and then mating those females to market targeted sires, 
when we use the gender sort semen, we can reduce basically the inventory of cows that are devoted to um, replacement female production by almost half. Um, so that means the, those females can now get devoted into this terminal sire system. And that really changes the efficiency of um, you know, the, the production chain at that level, because we're not producing these maternally oriented steer calves that go into the chain. Um, we're producing, you know, higher growth, more carcass-oriented calves uh, from the terminal side. So we can start partitioning our cow herd better um, and making better leverage decisions um, about uh, genetic inputs. Now, we look now to the seed stock producer and the changes that we've seen in the different breeds and uh, in their quality and in just so many different aspects from when you look back to the, the 50s, 60s, uh, 70s, and 80s, all the way up to now. Um, what what do seed stock providers, what are they doing in bull selection and promotion to help the industry in the conversation of sustainability? What, what are some tre- trends you've seen? And what are maybe some trends on the horizon that seed stock producers are considering in their selection for females and males and what those progeny are going to bring to the industry to make it more sustainability, uh, conversation-wise, profitability, and uh, environmentally? Yeah, great question, Lane. And I think the um, some some examples are um, you know there's a, a fair number of of breeds and breeders that are um, you know embracing uh, feed intake and feed efficiency data. Um, so you know, trying to get our arms around um, identifying those cattle that um, you know convert feed more efficiently to um, pounds of high quality edible beef. Um, that you know is a, is a direct sustainability discussion. Um, some work starting. Uh, in fact, we uh, just got our our new green feed systems here at K State um, last week to start to do some work on um, uh, cow maintenance uh, or metabolic efficiency. So we're going to try to measure um, uh, CO2 and consumption, O2 O2 consumption, CO2 and methane production um, to try and and figure out a way to estimate uh, metabolic rate in beef calves. Um, Remember about half or more of the calories consumed in the beef value chain are consumed by cows that it's devoted to maintenance. And so, you know, as an industry, we need to do a better job thinking about um, maintenance requirement. Um, how do we manage that? You know, it's largely driven by cow body weight and lactation potential. Um, how do we make sure those cows are adapted to their production environment um, to optimize principally reproductive rate, um, but also stocking density? We know stock density plays a key role in farm level profitability. Um, so, you know, we're trying to get our arms around a little bit of the, the cow metabolic and maintenance requirement bit, which I think is a kind of an untapped frontier in, in the cow side of our business. Um, you know, some novel work going on a variety of places looking at uh, uh, methanogenesis or methane production. How do we mitigate that? Um, how do we understand its relationship with um, growth rate? Um, Incidentally, one of the the things we sort of get dinged on as as an industry once in a while is methane, um, and I think you know, most producers um, probably haven't spent a lot of time thinking about that process. But um, a lot of it comes on the cow side. It's a, a roughage based byproduct um, in digestion. Um, so helping understand that more thoroughly and how we can kind of mitigate it, uh, I think is something we need to work on, both in potentially feed supplementation strategies uh, or feeding strategies, um, but also on the genetic side, of course. So, Well, and I want to continue to talk about the, the methane aspect of it. Uh, Dr. Weber, we're going to have to take a quick commercial break to hear from our sponsor. But when we come back, uh, we'll continue to talk with uh, Kansas State University's Dr. Bob Weber right after this. Your legacy is not only where you came from, but more importantly, it's where you're headed. With our toolbox of reproductive technologies, exceptional team of professionals, and more than 40 years of experience, we continue to create future leaders. Whether it's advancing superior genetics or empowering the next generation of livestock producers, you can trust TransOva to continue your legacy. Alrighty, again, a big thank you to today's podcast sponsor, TransOva, for their sponsorship of today's podcast. Again, our guest is Dr. Bob Weber 
uh, Kansas State University is where he calls home. And Bob, as you were just mentioning, um, uh, methane always gets brought up in conversations, especially in mainstream media. And uh, cattle producers, uh, they, they tend to just get on the defensive when, when the conversation of methane comes up. And and they'll say, it's it's not cow farts, it's cow burps. And, and, uh, and there's right. more, you know, uh, issues, you know, from the big cities and from cars. And, and I'm not disagreeing with those statements but i think that's one thing that we all need to be better about is is not being so reactionary and defensive and say yes you know actually cows do produce methane but uh, in, in in addressing that you know you mentioned we have to look at different uh, uh types of, of feeds or or research to to, to offset that methane can we uh, dive into more about that methane discussion and, and how producers can share that information about, yeah, cows do produce methane, but this is what we're doing to, to be more environmentally conscious about this. And this is what we've done for decades. And this is what we're going to do. Yeah, I think, um, um, uh, one, a lot of work to do yet, but I think a, an area where, um, you know, beef producers should and, and can become, um, more fluent and more educated in, in communicating about, um, you know, sort of methane's role in, um, you know, your believer in climate change or not. Methane to me represents, um, a loss of energy from our production system. And so, you know, I primarily come at it from a, a way of, well, how do I capture the energy that is blown off in methane and use that in a better way. Um, and so, you know, my, my objective, and I admit I kind of come at it from a kind of traditional animal scientist perspective, but it, it's a loss of digestion. Um, and I know it's got environmental consequence, all that stuff. But um, if my motivation as a beef producer is to think about two things, one, how do I become a better steward of the resources I have at hand? So that's feed inputs. Um, but also how do I be a better steward of the environment. And so that's, again, a motivator to reduce methane. Um, and so I think there's a, some, some practical things that we can and should think about from the, the methane perspective. Um, one of those is, you know, the research going on to look at, um, you know, feed additives to help partition um, uh, ruminant digestion towards um, uh, volatile fatty acids, so the, the products of digestion in the rumen um, that are uh, able to be captured and used by the animal versus blown off as methane. Um, and that's something our industry should continue to, uh, to focus on. Um, but we know that there's um, genetic relationships um, underlying here as well. Um, you know, some areas that have been talked about from a research perspective or, you know, the microbiome, so the animal to um, room and environment, uh, the, the bacteria and, and uh, uh, yeast and protozoa that live in the rumen of the animal, how do we um, shift those towards populations that produce less methane um, and more of the things we want um, is an area. And so understanding that uh, um, host relationship with that population of uh, microbes um, is, is important in an area of, of ongoing genetic research that we need to continue to be uh, engaged in in both the beef and dairy sectors because we you know, both both work in uh, forage and uh, grass uh, product digestion in the rumen. And, um, you know, the other thing is just doing a better job of, um, of kind of managing production efficiency. So think about it this way. If we've got a um, cow, a commercial cow out on range, and we know, you know forage consumption on range is the primary feed input for those cows. Um, that's also the area that produces the most methane. Um, how do we do a better job of making sure that for the methane that that cow blows off, that we actually get product out the back end of the production chain? Um, so that, that's things like, well, how do we improve reproductive efficiency and reproductive rate in our cow herd? Um, how do we do a better job selecting those cows to work in the production environment in which they live? Um, I like to think about methane as um, kind of a, we need an efficiency measure around methane, right? Because we can't just, if we think about minimizing methane blow off, um, that doesn't take us down the right road in terms of thinking about methane efficiency. So it's kind of like feed efficiency in a way. Um, we know we're going to have some of it. How do we optimize what we do produce against output of product? Um, and I think that's something that most producers maybe haven't taken the step to think about is that, um, you know, 
methane really ought to be approached from an efficiency standpoint. Um, Harvey Freetley is a scientist at the Meat Animal Research Center, um, did some uh, early methane work on a feed efficiency project that I was involved with when I was at Mizzou and then uh, later here at K-State. Um, and one of the things he found was that um, in some cases, the animals that were the most feed efficient actually produced the most in terms of volume, methane. Um, but they were also the high intake animals. Um, and so they were doing a better job if we convert it back to a methane efficiency perspective, even though those animals might have produced the most methane, they had the most favorable methane to beef production sort of ratio, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and so we got to be careful what measures we use um, in monitoring and measuring um, things in our sustainability system, I guess. Um, to make sure we go down the right path. Well, and again, data can be skewed depending on who is looking at it, too. And, and right. I know that's a concern that, that many ranchers have when, when you read an article in mainstream media or a blog or, or a, a, a blogger that's anti-livestock production. And I, I just think, and I, I totally get that concern because, again, you can skew any of this research data to be more preferential to your position on livestock production. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And so I think that again points though to the need for us as, as producers to not only understand, um, you know, our production system and how we work, but the consequences of some of the decisions that we make, um, and how those influence, um, you know, say methane production, methane efficiency, um, and can put that in context of, well, you know, my operation compared to, uh, which I'm, you know, actively working to improve sustainability versus, you know, methane production from landfills, right? Mm -hmm. Different scales of output, right? Um, in terms of methane produced, um, I'm not sure that people are changing their trash habits to manage methane production. In fact, I bet most people aren't. Um, but we can have a positive story about what we know and what steps we're taking to um, help mitigate that problem. So, And again, as we continue looking at genetics and sustainability in the cattle business, um, obviously you, you are in the thick of it in, in terms of research and seeing all these new tools or techniques, um, that, that are either in the beginning phase or are already out there. Um, what, what, what are some of those that come to mind that could become more mainstream to help producers be more profitable and conscious about this sustainability discussion? Yeah, great, uh, great observation lane. And I think, um, um, you know, some of them are, are, you know, back to the kind of the old school stuff, making sure we're doing all we can to, um, you know, use production practices that, um, you know, support, um, you know, sustainable, broad, broad, big umbrella sustainability objectives. And those can be drilled down back to, um, you know, individual, um, practices. Um, you know, I'll use, you know, implanting calves, right? So growth promoting implants, um, demonstrated improvements in, in efficiency of cows uh, or calves on range on suckling, um, cows, um, you know, technology that's been around for a long time, fairly positive impact, right? Um, you know, appropriate feed management, grazing strategies, um, water site improvement, um, uh, range management issues, um, you know, all those play a, a key role. Um, and I, I, I know your question was about genetics, but we can't forget about those other things either. Mm -hmm. On the mm -hmm. genetics front, um, you know, some of the things that are, you know, I would say rapidly becoming mainstream is measuring feed intake and feed efficiency. Um, you know, there's a lot of producers that have had uh, interest in that. Um, and in some cases, you know, maybe not, you know, installing a system or phenotyping bulls, but using genetics that have been produced out of those kinds of systems um, can be a way to you know, influence the genetics in your own herd without having to go to the expense of, of phenotyping. Um, you know, obviously, utilizing genomics tools that are leveraged against those uh, particular phenotypic endpoints uh, is useful. Uh, the seed stock sector to produce bulls that are, you know, more feed efficient, um, better input output relationships. Um, so there's some subtle, subtle things we can do, um, you know, that are driven 
very focused investment, you know, by a few people and a few uh, organizations in the industry that get spread out uh, across the business through um, genetic flow and the population. Um, you know, one thing I think that, that can help too is, you know, producers just getting um, more informed about genetic improvement and genetic selection. Um, you know, I think there's a, um, a population of uh, producers that believe that, you know, uh, EPDs don't work um, and, you know, uh, all the genetic improvement stuff's hocus pocus. Um, I, I want to, if, if, if you happen to be one of those people, I, I implore you, um, take time and call me. Um, we can have a chat um, because the tools really do work and there's there's great evidence that they work, um, but they also require that they be used um, by producers that are making informed decisions, right? If we select for the wrong thing and we get that, um that's not evidence that the tool doesn't work. That's evidence that we made a bad decision mm-hmm. in the implementation of the tool, right? Um, and so making sure that we have the skills um, or we engage people to help us in selection um, that have skills to make those good decisions is is really important. Um, you know, heritability is a, a term many people are familiar with, but if we think about it in this context, it means um, you know, the proportion of variation um, in a phenotype or an animal measurement that's under genetic control. Okay, um, that implies two things. One is that we can control it with genetics, right? If we have the appropriate tools for selection. Um, the other bit it is is that um, it's reflective then of the part that's not under genetic control, that's under environmental control. Um, And we should look at ways to um, influence those traits from the non-genetic aspects as well um, and make sure in our production system, we're leveraging as much of those management decisions as we can to positively impact, you know, our sustainability or production goals. You mentioned, of course, some people don't, uh, don't, don't buy into, you know, EPDs or, or other aspects of this research. Um, and I know it's hard to quantify it, but w- when you look at the conversations that you've had to people trying to explain that or, you know, all the presentations that you've done on behalf of extension work, whether that's in Kansas or across the United States, where you've interacted with these producers that are skeptical about it because it is their livelihood. I, I understand why people are skeptical. And it, it and a lot of folks just think these people are, are you know, these people are just trying to, to sell me something. Um and uh, I, I yep. get that, but you're also trying to sell your product as well at the end of the day um, to, mm-hmm. to, to a buyer on the cow-calf and the thing. You, you know, you have somebody buying and they want a, a feed-efficient calf and then you have the rest of the beef uh, supply cycle. But could you quantify maybe the amount of people that you have presented to that have actually reached out to you and and look for more resources uh, (laughs) that actually attend these meetings or presentations that say, you know what? Yes, you changed my mind. And I know that's a weird question and it's pretty hard to answer. But because, you know, people take a lot of time out of their schedules to to go to these. Uh, They want to get something out of it, but they have to put something into it, too. Right, and and your uh, your your observations an, an interesting one, and I've thought about it uh, on a number of number of occasions, and I think one of the challenges we have um, in, uh, in in extension is that you know, we we advertise a meeting, um, and it's you know Bob Weber's going to come talk about uh, beef cattle selection uh, and using EPDs. Well, if a person doesn't already have sort of a you know, at least some kind of interest or belief that the tool works, they're not even going to bother to show up. And so we end up a little bit preaching to the choir or, you know, at least moving somebody from point A to point B in their knowledge of, of EPDs and selection. Um, the really challenging folks to reach are the ones that go a priori, I don't believe in that crap and I'm not going to use it. Right. So, um, those people are, are sometimes very difficult to, um, connect with because they don't come to the meeting. Right. Um, that said, I think there's you know lots of opportunities in our business to um, uh, reach people at, at different spots, and you know podcasts like this are a great one. You know, kind of bring them in and and uh, and, and introduce them to an idea and, and some credible um, sources. I think that's an important part of it. Um, and the other part is you know we've seen a, a dramatic evolution in seed stock production, and in some ways the market's going to take care of care of stuff, right? So the, the people that embrace technology and tools that work um, and become more efficient and more profitable in their operations um, in a commodity business, those are the ones that survive, right? Those are the sustainable ongoing business concerns. Um, 
people that become less efficient because they didn't adopt tools or technology um, eventually are going to become challenged to be profitable in the system. Um, and so my encouragement is, is for people to look at not only genetics, but all aspects of their business where they can become more efficient, more profitable um, to ensure that sustainability. And that takes kind of a progressive mindset. Right. Um, being able to step out of your comfort space and go, OK, um, I'll use the example of an accountant. Many larger cow-calf operations have a professional accountant that they consult with routinely about, you know, the financial and tax implications of various business and management decisions. Um, they, by doing that, admit I'm not an expert in tax accounting. Right. Um, why don't more producers seek more input and more um professionally trained advice in genetics, right? That's something they do less frequently than accounting stuff, right? Once a year, typically people go buy bulls um, or make selection decisions. Don't be afraid to engage somebody to be a partner in your team. Um, that might be an extension professional. It might be a seed stock vendor. Um, get somebody engaged that knows the tools and knows how to work them um, and use them in, in selection decisions to be an advisor in your management team, if that makes sense. I get it. It's it's hard to, especially at uh, at an event, wh whether it's you know at the local uh, extension office uh, where where you could be coming in to to do a presentation, or at the at the the state uh, cattlemen or stock growers meeting to to ask a question if you don't know it. It's a, it, it, uh, we're we're all embarrassed about things because we're we especially those of us that have been in the industry for multi generations we. We know so much about what we do, but yet we, we still get a little apprehensive about asking about these resources that are there and these, uh -huh. the, these methods that could, that could make us more money at the end of the day. I, I get that. And especially as a young guy, there, there's things that my dad knows way more about or my father-in-law will, will know more about, and, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. But then there's those things I learned at Montana State University um, that, that I know work. And my dad is, is notorious for saying, did you learn that at college? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's exactly. just like, yeah, I did. I'm not here to change everything, but uh, like, like I had him, Here's... I had him stack bales differently one time, and, and he really liked it until it got too much snow on the ground. And that stacking bales one level in for you know on their sides end for end, it's a really efficient way. But when you get like four feet of snow, it's not the greatest way to take bales out. So you know, right, I, I learned right. that was not <laughs> that year was not to try to implement it, but. I guess what consequences what, of decisions right? exactly. Yeah. I, I learned a lot in that forages class, but uh, I, I guess the the thing that I'm trying to to bring up here as I ramble on into the sagebrush is when you look at uh, the people that attend your conferences uh, or uh, students that you've had, um, is the younger generation more apt and willing to look at these, whether it is through their degrees that they receive or through the time they take in attending these extension uh, research methods or participating in research themselves? Uh, do you see more flexibility and open-mindedness with the generation that is, you know, anywhere from 25 to 40 years old or a little older? I'm not, I'm not trying to, uh, you know, target anybody, but is this younger up and coming next generation owners of the operation, are they more willing to participate? Or are you seeing that same resistance? Um, you know, that's an interesting question. Um, I would say there's, it, it's, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Um, I think it somewhat depends on um, what, what their um, pre-existing test condition might be to say it in kind of an academic way. Um, <laughs> who, who influenced them before they showed up at college plays yeah. a big role in sort of their perspective um, on that. So some of them come um, with a, a sort of a, a preconceived notion or a bias um, into the discussion. Um, those ones are, are always uh, fun to uh, to debate and uh, engage in class. Um, and I, I have I don't have a teaching appointment, but routinely get to um, engage uh, some subsets of students here in animal science on genetics topics and over at the vet school as well. Um, and so that's that's always a, a fun exercise to sort of um, you know, convince the non-believer, if you will, um, <laughs> of of the tools. Um, but I would say there's 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 you know a contingent of um, you know more middle-aged folks like me. Uh, you know I'm, I just turned fifty, so I'm, I still think I'm middle-aged. Um, but you know 
seeing the uh, advantages and the progress that the people that really apply the tool correctly can make um, is is a good motivator to to become more engaged and know more about the technology. And and I want to kind of reiterate, not everybody has to become an expert, right? Um, one of the ways that commercial producers can leverage um, really good selection and decision making is actually by just going buying bulls from a seed stock vendor that cares about the things that you care about, mm-hmm. right? That that uses the tools, uses them effectively. That means I can just go buy a bull that I like the way he looks. Um, he may need to meet some certain criteria. Have a conversation with your seed stock vendor. Um, let them help you pick the bulls that meet your objectives and needs. Um, you know, there's not anybody on the planet that knows that set of bulls better than the guy that made them. Um, engage that resource, right? Um, you know, there's there's lots of uh, seed stock producers that do an outstanding job and data collection. Um, you know, there's uh, one of the common sort of um, things that people discredit genetic improvement on is, well, you know, that producer doesn't report the data, right, or monkeys with the numbers. That may be true. Then I ask, well, why are you doing business with that person that's monkeying with the numbers? Mm-hmm. Go find a vendor that doesn't monkey with the numbers, does a good job, buy bulls from him, right? Um, it, it's sort of, I scratch my head sometimes that you know, people, well, I'm not, I don't believe him because people monkey with the There's plenty of people that don't. Um, and the, the system's pretty self-healing if you think about it, right? Um, you know, a seed stock producer might jockey the numbers, but as soon as those genetics get used in other herds and data reported, the system figures out that wasn't what it really came out as initially. Um, and the EPDs move and adjust. So, um, you know, there's – and I, I have high confidence in seed stock producers' integrity, um, but there there's bad actors in every business. Um, if you know one, don't do business with them, right? Go take your dollars and vote somewhere else. Um, but the system, the tools really do work. Um, and I, I encourage producers to, you know, there's opportunities uh, abound, um, you know, on genetic improvement education. Um, I'll throw in a, a quick plug for, um, you know, I worked in a team uh, that focused on beef genetics, has a website called ebeef.org, which has a, a tremendous amount of um, genetic improvement resources, um, educational materials um, targeted at producers. Uh, if you want more knowledge in that area, that's a great place to go. Um, Matt Spangler and I um, uh, jointly produce um, uh, some educational content for the King Ranch Institute on ranch management. We do a lectureship for them um, every year. Uh, I think that maybe is the one you were mentioning that we attended in in Montana. Um, A great event. It's a day and a half um, focused on um, genetic improvement uh, targeted at uh, principally cow-calf producers. We get a few seed stock people that come, but it's largely targeted at uh, um, cow-calf producers. Um, So lots of resources available um, uh, out in the industry. Uh, Encourage folks to go, go spend some time. And then think about, you know, we'll tie it back to the sustainability discussion. Um, how might you use those tools then, um, either EPDs or crossbreeding systems, uh, genetic improvement broadly, um, to impact um, your operation, uh, the efficiency of your operation, and the product that you produce? Well, again, we've, we've covered so much, especially on the producer end of things. But I, I guess the last little bit that I want to focus on here today is... Are, are we currently meeting the needs and the demand of the consumer today? And, and what I mean by that, the need is, um, are, are we tying this into the consumer's perception of beef enough about sustainability um, and, and genetic selection? Are, are we engaging with them enough? I, I know certain data right now that the beef checkoff and, and uh, a few ag economists just showed that, that consumers prefer beef three times more than uh, fake meats or uh, alternative plant proteins. But what are we are, are we doing enough to engage with these producers on the conversation of sustainability right now, and what can we do better to improve that? Yeah, good question, Lane. Um, I'm not sure I've got all the visibility needed to really really answer the question, other than from sort of the beef producer side and um, thinking about well, what what would be helpful to me as I communicate with consumers um, about beef sustainability. Um, 
I think one of the things is, is um, you know, discussions like you and I are having um, to sort of help people think through um, kind of conceptualizing sustainability in their own terms on their own operation, you know, thinking about, well, what things do I do from a production practice standpoint that help me, you know, become more efficient, um, better utilize feed and petroleum resources, um, better range management, better water quality. You know, so a lot of the environmental stewardship kinds of principles that we talk about uh, through NCBA and other groups um, play a key role in that, but also, you know, some, some basic beef production production efficiency practices um, play a key role. So, you know, I think, um, you know, there's some research I'm aware of that's been been funded through um, NCBA and, and checkoff stuff on um, um, life cycle assessment. Um, so, you know, becoming fluent in that uh, um, data uh, or the outcomes of that and being able to articulate that to a, a person in the consuming public as a beef producer, I think is really important. Um Looking forward to seeing more results there, um, and also some um, you know, work that's been uh, funded through NCBA on mitigation strategies. So, looking at specific production practices and its impact on you know a variety of sustainability measures. Um, what's both the environmental impacts of those, but also the economic impacts? Um, and spending some time with that to to be able to articulate um, to consumers here's what we're doing on our operation and here's what the impact is. Um, I think can be really, really powerful. Um, and, and I think those personal um, messages sort of reinforce the idea that, you know, beef production, particularly at the cow calf level, it's lots of small family businesses. Right. Um, and I think the, the general consuming public still thinks of beef production as, you know, this big industrialized ag complex. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, buying beef at the grocery stores, buying local, cause we produce beef all over the United States. Um, and we all play an important part in that value chain and we all have responsibility for doing our part um, in improving sustainability. And so becoming educated and being able to communicate about what we do on our own operations is an important part of that, I think. My last question is, what advice do you have to, to a young a person out there that is considering going to college? Maybe they don't have the opportunity to go back to an operation or it's going to be some time uh, before they can do that. Um, maybe considering a, a career in extension in extension research. Uh, um, myself, I, I have a degree in ag education relations, which is essentially the extension degree Montana State University provided because I didn't know what I was going to do until I did have the opportunity to become a a, a farm broadcaster and BS all day. Um, uh, what, <laughs> and you're great at it, man. <laughs> I, I try to be. I'm full of good questions. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think what, what advice do you have for them to – to look at these opportunities, to still stay involved in production agriculture, and maybe even have a little herd of their own on the side. What 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 are your tips to to continue to be involved uh, in, in in serve the industry in whatever way they can? Yeah, that's um, uh, a really good point, and I think um, actually one of our um, 4-H um, administrators here and I. At K-State, he and I had a conversation that mirrored this question um, very closely just a couple of days ago. And it was about, you know, the, the opportunities in agriculture um, today are substantial because we don't produce enough people from the rural sector to meet the job demands in ag. And that means we need to grow um, the influence um, uh, that we have to recruit people from other walks of life into agriculture. Um, so I think, you know, there's a, a great opportunity for people, um, you know, entering either in livestock or cropping side um, from a variety of disciplines. So you mentioned communications, um, obviously extension, um, uh, you can be you know, kind of communication oriented or technical content oriented. So, you know, a degree in, you know, ag economics or animal science, uh, something like that. Um, pursue a master's degree, get some additional uh, mastery in a, in a subject area can provide opportunities to get that technical expertise out into industry. Um, you know, there's just lots and lots of opportunities for um, uh 
individuals to come in and be engaged in a lot of what we call allied industry. Um, so the businesses that support agricultural production, um, you know, that's uh, can be feed manufacturing, processing, um, you know, fertilizer and chemical business. There's all kinds of opportunities on um, sales and management sides in those businesses to come in and be affiliated with um, agricultural production without having to be, you know, a landowner, if you will, or land leaser. Um, so there's there's lots of opportunities. Um, you know, the, the the challenge I think sometimes we have in ag is that you know, we produce young people in our communities that are, you know, hardworking. They have a, you know tremendous work ethic. Um, many of them are are very very intelligent, um, and they get peeled off into um, you know other disciplines. So they become you know doctors and lawyers and bankers and um, you know, sales managers and, and stuff. And they go into other walks of life that um, may still be engaged in our rural communities, but not directly in um, you know livestock or crop production. And so um, that's a challenge for us. We need to recruit new people um, and get them trained up. So there's there's lots and lots of opportunities in ag. So no, there definitely are, and again, as we grow, more broadband access and, and the ability for uh, young people to move back to these rural communities and work from home, just having them uh, uh, be a, a taxpayer, being involved in as a 4-H leader, uh, you know, doing do, being the accountant for, for the local farmers and ranchers and being that tool right. that, that everyone should, uh, 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 especially in this genetics conversation, look for these other tools that they can utilize and not have to be the experts mm-hmm. themselves. So I, I think that's a bright future. And, and, and I know, Bob, we are coming up on close to an hour of our conversation. It's been a great one. But I guess my last question is, if someone wants to call you up and debate you on EPDs, how can they get a, a hold of you or maybe look to where you may be presenting in their region in, in the future? <laughs> Super. Great. Uh, I'd, I'd welcome those uh, those conversations. Um, I also like the calls of affirmation, too. So if somebody <laughs> says, hey, you're doing great, you know, we don't get the, those phone calls too often, but uh, I'm sure uh, um, welcome those, too. But um, glad, glad to help folks um, continue to learn um, about um, beef cattle genetics. Um, I mentioned... Um, um, the King Ranch Institute lectureship. Um, we actually have one of those coming up. Uh, it's an online event this year um, due to the COVID stuff, which you mentioned technology. It's a remarkably a remarkable how we've changed um, delivery of extension programs across the country in the last 12 months um, and officing, right? So I happen to be in the office today, but um, it's the third time I've been here in, uh, in, in 2021. Uh, so lots of home office, technology works great. Um, uh, but that uh, King Ranch Institute one's going to be an online event, so you can consume it from uh, the comfort and warmth of your own home uh, or office. And uh, that's at the end of the month, the 24th and 25th, I think. But if you just Google King Ranch Genetics Lectureship, you'll find it. That's an opportunity um, coming up. Um, another one that I and we haven't talked a lot about, Beef Improvement Federation, um, but one of the, the roles I fill is uh, currently as executive director of that group. Um, we have an annual um, educational symposium uh, in conference. Um, this year it's going to be in Des Moines, uh, Iowa. The Iowa State folks, Dan Loy and his crew, um, are hosting the event uh, towards the end of June. Um, just look up beefimprovement.org. You can find more details on that conference. It's a great one to come. Um, there's a young producer segment of that uh, program targeted particularly at young uh, folks and not all genetics content in that. There's a lot of business development, mm-hmm. leadership, business management components that come into that. Um, but a great way to sort of seg into um, uh, BIF programming and events. Um, you know, other uh, uh, opportunities, of course, I mentioned the ebeef.org website, uh, a good spot to go. Um and um, I'm trying to think of oh one other thing that's about to come out. Um, uh, Dare Bullock at the University of Kentucky has been serving as editor of a new version of our beef sire selection manual. So um, a number of years ago, the National Beef Cattle Evaluation Consortium uh, commissioned a, a producer-targeted publication um, called the Beef Sire Selection Manual. Really creative title, um, but it's it's targeted at uh, at commercial cow-calf producers um, to learn more about contemporary beef genetics. And so it's written at um, a a very approachable level. Um, 
and covers a, a, a wide range of uh, sort of genetic selection uh, opportunities. Um, another tool that's uh, featured in the third edition now is uh, some decision support tools. Dr. Spangler and I, um, some uh, faculty at the Meat Animal Research Center and uh, Dr. Bruce Golden have been working on a um, web-based decision support tool to basically build customized selection indexes um, for uh, cow-calf producers. So they can go in and um, put in data about their operation, their current breed structure and their cow herd, um, what kinds of bulls they're interested in using, and basically create a customized selection index. And uh, so that's a, an opportunity we'll be highlighting over the next year. Um, it's called iGenDEC, so Internet Genetic Decisions um, is sort of the acronym. So uh, iGenDEC is something to watch for. We'll have some online training opportunities for uh, extension educators, but also uh, some opportunities for producers to become engaged and learn about that particular tools. So the, the Lane, the best way to get a hold of me, producers can, uh, um, uh, I'm good with text, emails, phone, whatever is uh, uh, comfortable for folks. Um, my uh, uh, Office uh, uh, number seven eight five four seven seven one two eight seven. That's my mobile number. So if, if somebody wants to um, to text or, or phone, that's uh, that's a okay. I'm glad glad to be available. Um, my email is b weber. So b w e a b as in boy e r at k s u dot edu. Dr. Weber, a great conversation today. I appreciate you taking the time and just uh, talking about uh, th these issues that, that affect us on so many different levels. And before we wrap up, I do just want to give a big thank you to Transova Genetics for their support of NCBA, the beef industry, and of course, this podcast. Find out more about why they're celebrating 40 years of multiplying success at Transova. Dot com. Uh, again, Dr. Bob Weber, thank you so much for joining us here today. I really appreciate the conversation we had today, and hopefully we can uh, continue this conversation down the road. Thanks for joining us. You bet. Thanks, Lane. It's been great being on the program. All right, friends, that will do it for today's Cattleman's Call podcast. I'm Lane Nordlund. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with Lane Nordland. For more information, visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.